Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In season six, our disease films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit, some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices, like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big. Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> we talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today. Hey! 
This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies tonight on the show, the second in our 2017 series of the films of Hayao Miyazaki with his 2001 Spirited Away. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you're a regular listener of the show and you're interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thenextreel. And you know what time it is, Pete? I do know what time it is, Andy. Tell the people. It is time for our next listener's choice drawing. That's right. Uh, For those of you who are following us over on Patreon, we're going to be drawing a name out of the TNR hat. And the lucky winner is going to get to pick a movie for our next listener's choice uh, selection. Should we do it? We should do it, Andy. We should do it. I've been waiting for this since last quarter. (laughs) All of my excitement is is on the quarter. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Well, uh, here we go. Can I get a drum roll, Pete? You you can. Insert drum roll fully sound here. (laughs) Excellent. All right, Pete. And the winner is... Nick Langdon. No way. It is. It really is. <laughs> oh, that's going to be good. We have uh, we have been corresponding with Nick Langdon uh, in some fashion or another for a long time. It is about time. And uh, and and you posted, didn't you? Post today something uh, uh, something yeah. looking for if you won in Slack, what would you choose? I did. In fact, and I got to tell you, Nick Langdon. He chose some great films. He did, and and a good number of them. So it'll be uh, now. It's up to him to whittle down to that one movie, which we will <laughs> announce soon. Outstanding! Congratulations, Nick Langdon. Thank you so much for being part of the community. Absolutely. We got a blot spot, Andy, uh, front of the show. Uh, ben Lott has written in with his uh, rebound on <laughs> on his love of anime. Princess Mononoke. I guess I'm just not programmed to love anime. I keep trying and keep failing. Princess Mononoke started out promising, and then it devolved into an overly complicated Fern Gully, Pocahontas, Avatar, or Dances with Wolves. I don't need to see that story again, ever. Your rank 191, my rank 187. Isn't that I think, funny? I, I think he doesn't like stories that uh, are about saving the environment. He's an anti-environmentalist. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. We, more there will be blood. Uh, <laughs> But Waterworld, yes. Waterworld, go, go, postman, go. Andy, it's time. Let's do trailers. So my uh, trailer pick is for the the film Good Time, which is going to be coming out uh, a little later this summer. Directed, uh, co-directed by Ben and Joshua Safdi. Um, I uh, I'm not exactly sure who these. I, I think they're brothers, Ben and Joshua. They are. Um, they are brothers. Yeah, and they are uh, directors and actors who have been uh, doing stuff for about a decade. A lot of little shorts and some documentaries and getting into features. And uh, this looks like a really kind of an interesting crime drama story. And uh, what excites me about it is seeing Robert Pattinson playing one of the uh, one of these brothers who are bank robbers, and his brother gets caught. And he's really worried about his brother and just, you know, how his brother's going to be able to take it in prison. And uh, and Ben Softy actually is playing his brother. And 
and there's just this really interesting vibe that I get out of Robert Pattinson in this. And it just, it got me so excited seeing Robert Pattinson. And he's been an actor who's been doing some really interesting projects um, outside of uh, the Harry Potter and uh, Twilight franchises. And I, I think that it's great seeing actors who do get kind of pigeonholed in some of those really big uh, blockbusters trying to do some more unique things. Like, I mean, he did Cosmopolis with uh, with Cronenberg, which was kind of a really mm-hmm. interesting choice. And uh, and he's kind of been continuing down that path, just seeing what other things he did. The Rover was supposed to be pretty interesting, Maps to the Stars. So uh, I'm getting, uh, it makes me happy to see him really kind of expanding. And I was, I lo- the Lost City of Z, man, I, that's one that I missed. I really want to see. I got to try to track that down because I've heard nothing but good things about that. This trailer, there's something about him in here that just really is magnetic, and uh, there's this darkness, but this this uh, real strong connection that I get just from watching the trailer with his brother, and it just got me really excited to see. Uh, Jennifer Jason Lee pops up. She's been always fantastic. Barkad Abdi uh, pops up in here, and it was nice to see him, so... I don't, I don't know. I think the the other thing that really tipped me off that I this was something I wanted to see is the fact that the A24 logo was on at the start of it again. And I've talked about how much I'm enjoying what that distribution company is doing. So uh, yeah, good time. What do you think, Pete? No, I it, it surprised me. I, I hadn't heard of it. I haven't heard of these guys. But now, uh, you know, looking at the the uh, uh, their catalog of films uh, and the the films that they've collaborated on with uh, Ron Bronstein, their co-writer with uh, Joshua right. Safdie of Good Time, uh, you know, they there are some really interesting stories, interesting looking stories that they've got. This Daddy Long Legs looks like something I need to catch. Uh, uh, so anyway, it's it's I I think it's worth investigating based on absolutely nothing other than I really like Robert. Pattinson when he does these more off the wall films. I like Jennifer Jason Lee when she's not in Rush and Barkat Abdi. Uh, <laughs> I just love that that dude's in movies, let alone he's really good. So here, here. Um, I, yeah, I, I'm just really excited to see his his credits list continue to grow, and I will continue to see his stuff. Big fan. Fantastic. Well, this uh, this premiered at the Cannes Film Festival. It's going to be opening here in the U.S. August 11th and in France October 11th. Those are the only release dates it has, but hopefully it will expand a little bit more beyond that. My trailer, Andy, is Okja. Had you heard of Okja? Oh, yes. You had? I had yeah, not. I think, yeah, I think we talked about it. We mentioned it. We didn't know what it was, but I think when we were no, doing our Bong Joon-ho yeah. series, we mentioned it. We just didn't know what it was, yeah. That's right. And and that's I, I guess that's what I mean to say. When I first heard of it and saw the promotional art for it, I kind of passed it by, right? It's this it's this big animal and the kid looks kind of kid friendly. And then you look closer to the art and you see that there's like a silhouette on the poster, a silhouette of this big animal and the kid is holding the animal on a leash, and on the back of the animal is a giant like oil refinery. And and I guess I missed that because it's much more <laughs> interesting <laughs> when you see that. Uh it just looks it looks like a kid's film, and I thought I'm just gonna put this on the list for for you know when we're bored and the kids and you know whatever turns out andy uh this looks like something i really really want to see it is essentially the cast of snowpiercer obviously bong joon ho uh it, it we've got tilda swinton back as the maniacal crazy lady in charge of everything and they have solved the world's food crisis by genetically engineering a wonderful large pig-like creature and it is the story 
It's the story of trying to rationalize falling in love with the, the, the creature and also eating it. And I was really smitten by this trailer. I thought it was both cute and insane, and I love that it exists, uh, and I can't wait to watch it. It is another Netflix acquisition, uh, so it, we are going to get to see it uh, online in the convenience of our own devices. What do you think? Oh, I'm super excited. I, you know, we we had a Bong Joon-ho series. He's made some really interesting films. And this just looks right in line with what I would expect from him. A really uh, kind of a quirky, uh, creative, uh, potentially dark uh, sci-fi story that uh, is takes place present day, but kind of, you know, shifts things a little bit. And I love what he's doing here. I love these characters that he creates, you know, Tilda Swinton, you mentioned, but Paul Dano. I love seeing Steven Yeun in there, uh, Lily Collins. Mm-hmm. Uh, we even get a Giancarlo Esposito popping in there. And of course, I've been hearing nothing but uh, great things about Jake Gyllenhaal and his completely just insane character, Dr. Johnny Wilcox, that he plays in this film. I really uh, am excited. And of course, the little girl playing, um, uh, I'm not even sure uh, what the little girl's name is who plays the lead, but she looks great. Mija, An Cho Hyun is the, the lead. And she's, she does, she looks delightful. It feels like a, a like red balloon on the killing floor kind of a story. <laughs> it's so <laughs> right. crazy. Uh, so I'm I'm excited about it, uh, and uh, yeah, you're right, God, Johnny, Doctor Johnny Wilcox, uh, another Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, great Jake Gyllenhaal role. So I'm excited about it. Uh, it looks like it hits um, uh, June 28th. It's going to drop on Netflix. It does. Uh, it is already. Let's see. As we are recording this, it actually premiered at Cannes uh, three days ago, four days ago, uh, and so. Um, uh, Sydney Film Festival gets it June 18th, uh, UK gets it June 23rd, and pretty much everybody else, it looks like, uh, with Netflix is going to get it June 28th. There you Excellent. go. Excellent. Excellent. I finally get a bouquet, and it's a goodbye present. That's depressing. What is it? Come on, let's go in. I want to see what's on the other side. Where are you going? Hey! You said just a quick look! Now let's go back! You shouldn't be here. Get out of here, now! What? Leave before it gets dark. You've got to get across the river. Go! I'll distract them. Away 2001, uh, released in the U.S. 2003, uh, writer-director Hayao Miyazaki. Uh, it is the story of a young girl, Chihiro, who uh, it, she goes on a crazy adventure uh, after her parents turn into pigs. How did it hit you? <laughs> Is that I not enough. <laughs> no, I think that's that's one way to sell it. Yes, that is. <laughs> It pretty much says everything you need. I love this movie. This is, I think, one of, uh, if not the best, it is one of Miyazaki's best films. I really, really um, fall in love with it more and more every time I watch it. And uh, this time, I, it's it spoke so highly to me that I was watching this with my my son, and and we started it late. 
and like practically at bedtime. And he would, you know, I kept saying, all right, why don't we pause it and you can go to bed and finish it later. And he would not let me stop it. I mean, he wanted to finish it all the way through to the end because he was so stuck in this world. He just was enamored with it. And and he had seen it before. I think it just it speaks so highly that, that it uh, latches onto you um, regardless of your age so well. It's a really strong film. It's a beautiful journey. Um, there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening in this film, and uh, it's just it's a fantastic and fantastical world that Miyazaki has created here, and uh, I just I, I just love it. Well, we really struggled with it over here. Oh, My really? Kids didn't connect with it, and I just oh. I have trouble with Miyazaki's whimsy. Psych. I love this oh. movie, Andy. It's my very favorite of Miyazaki's movies. I was movies. going to like, beat you. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I couldn't even sell it anymore because I can't lie through such a smile, Andy. I love this movie. I love it so, so, so much. Uh, I adore it. I think it's it jams so much into uh, just thematically uh, into the this what could have been just a really sort of dumb, uh, you know, ride of this girl through this fancy spirit village. It, it could have been just, you know, just a visual adventure, and it ends up being something that, that allows you to be really introspective and and consider the world around you, and that is just the gift that Miyazaki has, uh, imparts on us as viewers, and I think he's so, so good at it. Of, of all of the things that Miyazaki does well in his filmmaking, this movie nails all of them. It is an example of all of them, and I think that is uh, just terrific you know you brought up kind of that idea of um of a film that's you could it could have just been like this this beautiful beautiful journey and nothing else i i think that it's something that's easy to compare it to is alice in wonderland as a kid like the disney version of that film um i really loved as a kid and as i got older um, my love for it kind of grew less and less. I still think it, it'll always hold a special place in my heart. It's a beautiful film. It's a really creative story, but there's no meat to it. It's just a, kind of this wacky, crazy adventure that Alice goes on. And in the end, she's just kind of wakes up, you know, by the, uh, by the rabbit hole and everything's okay. And it's like, what a peculiar dream. And it's just kind of like, oh, okay, there's nothing to it. It was just a dream. Um, and even the book is just this nonsensical, uh, journey that uh, that she goes on there too very sp- uh, much speaking of the kind of the supposed like acid trips that Lewis Carroll was taking when he was actually writing those stories but um, this is so much more than that there's there's a real character journey here that you get this sense of this little girl who's um, you know forced to move and leave her home and and over the course of this journey, by the time we get to the end, we see her kind of grow and she comes into her own and she finds strength in who she is and she's able to help people and read people and she's just got this this better sense of everything outside of her own little world and that really kind of helps her as we get to the end and we see how she's grown and changed. And I think it's just, it's it's so beautiful and it speaks on so many levels of just human growth and I, I 
it's powerful. Oh, it 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 is just fantastic. Um, uh, you know, the other thing that beyond her, you know, once you get out of of uh, her, uh, is that that we've got this um, this dis- so many of these other variables, right? These other variables that are presenting their experience to her in her process of growing, right? Greed and gluttony and desire, and you know Miyazaki's favorite, the environment at a whole healthy world, uh, you know, appearance and dedication and nostalgia, which is just a, a wonderful theme throughout this. Uh, you know, it, it it is as Miyazaki says, uh, nostalgia is not just the domain of the old, right? And I think that's one of the things that this movie really allows us to see is that through this little girl, she is she's starting with this move, and she is already even at you know ten years old, she's already nostalgic for um, for a past that she has you know that she misses, and I, I think that's really a, a, a really important piece of this. The experience going forward is what allows her to process what she has missed and, and is left behind. Uh, and, and I think it's just uh, just beautiful. And, you know, what's up with the parenting? <laughs> these, these people are nuts. I, they're just crazy, crazy parents. It really cracks me up how how they are. I mean, to a certain extent, though, it's like, you know, you've you've had these kids for so long. You know, you you there are things that your kids do and say that you kind of just stop paying attention to and stop reacting to, and the way that her parents react with uh, with some of the things that Chihiro says and does, it's like okay, they've probably heard this a million times from her. This is just how they're how they're taking care of it. Um, but you know, yeah, I mean, her dad certainly is a, a nutty driver. I mean, it's just like, let's take this road <laughs> to nowhere, but I'm going to drive like a maniac because it's, because why not? Yeah, right. Well, it's, it's interesting on this, on, on the experience of parenting and her experience of, of being parented that the parents almost come off, they, they come off as maniacal, right? Just in, and not necessarily sort of menacing, right? Or sinister, but, but certainly inattentive to their experience of being parents, right? They, they threaten to leave her alone by the car in the scary woods, right? They oh, yeah. are so interested and self-interested in their own experience of this old broken down amusement park that they, you know, they are inconsiderate of her and and what she's going through, and she's already sad, right? So, uh, you know, and then they are entirely motivated by the treasure hunt of you know what is that smell that they start turning over every you know every door, every corner, until they become our first example of just sort of gluttony in the film as they they find the food uh, at the very first shop that is sort of coming to life in the evening, and they eat it to the point that they are cursed and become giant disgusting the disgusting kind of pigs <laughs> they really are they're they're almost okjas they are almost <laughs> okjas, but okja was sweet okja you want to cuddle with yes. okja you wouldn't no, want this, to you don't want to cuddle with the parents <laughs> <laughs> nice uh it, i find it just re- really great and i and i think it's a you know it's i really am touched by the experience of like introducing this young girl to her parents in this light i think that's the start of the lessons that we get to experience in the in the film well, and and for a ten year old kid, it's interesting to to put your parents in that light, right? I mean, kids certainly at that age um, tend to look at their parents with a little more uh, a sense of you know the protector, the one who's always right, the one who always knows everything. Um, and and here is a great example of her parents being these kind of poor examples for her of you know driven by by greed. 
and gluttony and uh, and you know that's kind of her first example is you know her parents certainly are not perfect people and now she's going to have to deal with those repercussions yeah right uh, you know her experience of kind of going further in looking for her parents is also her experience of escaping her parents yeah one of the things that i found myself thinking as we were as we were watching the film is just i mean it's another long film right it's it's you know it's it's, it's not an 80 minute Romp. It's another longer film. It's, I can't remember. Does it come in over two hours, two five, something? Just like that? over, yeah, two hours five minutes. Yeah, um, and, and you know, there is a, another remarkable sort of sense of stillness in the film. There are a lot of these these passages where the the background just stops moving. You know, where there's no motion on the on the screen, or where there is just enough in the background, or the water is flowing, or it's you know, uh, characters are. Are uh, just taking a deep breath, and and I think that's a, a a lovely thing. Particularly, she's when she's huddled up in the corner against the uh, against the wood, she or against the the bathhouse. You know, she's lonely and sad, and we get to just watch her be sad. And and I then stumbled on this quote in an interview with Miyazaki uh, uh, that uh, Ebert did. Uh, he asked him about that very thing, and he called it gratuitous motion in films. These are silent moments of introspection, like the sighs and the running streams. And Miyazaki says, we have a word for that in Japanese. It's called ma, emptiness. It's there intentionally. Uh, the people who make the movies are scared of silence. They want pa- to paper and plaster over it. They're worried that the audience will get bored. They might go up and get popcorn. But just because it's 80% intense all the time doesn't mean kids are going to bless you with their concentration. What really matters is the underlying emotions, that you never let go of those. And I love that. I love that he sort of, he, he invigorates the spirit of the film with, with Ma. Uh, and it, it is, again, it's another sort of uh, Miyazaki stamp. Of, of patience and coming off of alien covenant <laughs> that's what i was about to say you know who could have uh, used a little bit more ma in his needs a little bit more <laughs> ridley scott uh ma 101 yes uh, oh wow oh dear yeah and and that's something i really love is that there is a patience and what that allows for and same thing going back to alien in that conversation we had in our most recent film board is that um it helps the world building. It allows the viewer time to just kind of settle in and and just have an understanding of the world that they're in. Uh, I think that uh, that Miyazaki's films really have that time that gi- that that he gives you to kind of just kind of get a sense of things. And it's those little details that it's like, oh, okay, the, these little these little sitballs just kind of move around like this, and they eat these little star candies. And okay, this is great. And then you kind of see where they sleep, and they kind of take her shoes, and just like, like little little things, or even just the way that people are kind of waving out the windows and and just or just walking through the hallways. I mean, he he spends time. And just allows for things to be happening. So you really get a sense of of presence. And I think that's a, a very critical thing. You know, there's, uh, I think time often is something that can be neglected in films where where they do feel like they have to rush through a story and the storytelling needs to be quick to keep an audience's attention. And I, I think that Miyazaki's absolutely right. It's the underlying emotions. You have that in there and people will allow for that uh, patience to, to work on them. Uh, Ridley Scott certainly did back in 1979 and certainly has lost that by the time he hit 2017. Man, you have... You have not done well with that movie. Double feature podcast today. (laughs) How else can I compare these? (laughs) 
the hearing him talk Miyazaki talk about the way he makes films you know we've talked before and certainly don't want to belabor a series that we did started a year and a half ago uh, but he doesn't do scripts per se he doesn't do screenplays he just starts storyboarding and uh, you know speaking of this production in particular um, you, you know he realized it was going to be over three hours long uh, when when the story first came out of him. As it turns out, it ended up with 1,415 different shots in the film. He had envisioned 1,200, but he says, the film told me no, it had to be more than 1,200. And and I find that really touching and sort of adorable that he he talks about the film as leading him through its own creation. That's really interesting. You know who else I've heard talk that way about uh, his films? Ridley Scott. <laughs> not really Scott uh, Francis Ford Coppola actually I heard him I heard him saying something similar when he was making Bram Stoker's Dracula he was talking very specifically he's like well I'm envisioning about and I think it was about 1200 shots to tell this story which is kind of weird wow it's an interesting way to think about a movie that I don't hear yeah. very many people saying things like that that's it that's it you know he he says it's not me who makes the film the film makes itself and I have no choice but to follow I love that I am so connected to that that sentiment I feel like uh, I feel like that's a lesson to internalize in so many other areas well you certainly hear a lot of authors talk that way uh, more so maybe about True. the characters where they say you know I, I I you know once I kind of created this character I had to allow them to kind of go on the journey and I had to kind of go along and write it. Um, as they were taking it. It wasn't so much them coming up with it. And I find it, it's a really interesting way to uh, kind of really, as, as a creator, to connect to your to your material. So it's uh, it's pretty interesting. Just like David connected with his. <laughs> oh, stop it. <laughs> uh, uh, the direction uh, we have, uh, again, obviously, Hayao Miyazaki, he says he makes this, he made this film for 10-year-old girls. Uh, I guess that his um, one of his uh, producer friends has some uh, young girls, and they would always kind of go, you know, he and uh, their families would all kind of go stay in a country, uh, country cabins, you know, for a while every summer. And, and he kind of got used to these girls, and they all, everyone became friends. And, you know, he said that he'd kind of made My Neighbor Totoro for younger kids, Kiki's Delivery Service for, for the teenage kids. But he really didn't feel like he had anything kind of for the, his this his friend's daughter, who specifically was around 10 years old. And um, so he's like, I should be inter- interesting to kind of look at that age. And so he looked at some of her magazines that uh, that they had left there, but they were all just like, uh, you know, the Japanese versions of those, uh, you know, beat and things like that. Just, you know, the, <laughs> just all crushes and boys and romance and all that sort of stuff. But he said that, you know, what Miyazaki said is that it, he felt it wasn't what they held dear in their hearts. And he decided to produce the film about a girl heroine whom they could look up, look up to instead. And I think that speaks well to... Looking beyond what uh, what you know, ten year old girls and and just kids might be interested in general, kind of on the outside, kind of all that superfluous romance and and you know giggly stuff, and really look at what is something that they would latch onto, and that's like this this heroine that they could really strive to learn from. I thought that was a really powerful way to approach it, and uh, it certainly is a film that my daughter loves, and I th- I think that it it uh, it speaks well to how Miyazaki latches on to the way that he uh, chooses his stories. 
I, I agree with that. I think Chihiro in particular, one of the reasons I think she's so interesting is, A, she does exemplify that here's a girl of our uh, that is our contemporary, and yet we can look up to her. But she also reflects her contemporaries, right? And there are stories of, of Miyazaki talking about why he created Ch- Chihiro the way she is. She's sort of angsty. Uh, he uses the word listless, which I, I don't necessarily connect with, I, and, you know, um, but... Uh, she is definitely angsty and she's that sort of, she's, you, you can tell she's at that age where she's just, you know, she's going to start rolling her eyes. And there is an experience in the film when, you know, dad calls her and she doesn't respond until the second time. And yeah, that's about when that starts to happen, right? You know, as a dad, like <laughs> you start having to call oh, yeah. her name more and more times. That It felt really, uh, I think, very real. And and maybe that is just an experience that I have as a, as a father watching this, a father of a daughter in particular. And we've already cruised past the 10-year-old stage. Um, so, uh, you know, I, maybe I'm connecting with that more, but it, it certainly reads as very intentional the way he made this character sort of, you know, really struggling with the pains of growing up and relating to her parents as adults and relating to outsiders and, and that kind of a thing. Yeah, I mean, that 10-year-old age, I mean, my daughter is 10, so I'm like right there. I, I you know, have the little Chihiro in my house right now. Go, go ahead and call very, her name. Let's see how long very, it takes. Yeah, right. Yeah, very <laughs> sullen and moody. I mean, it's it's very much a prepubescent age, and so there's a lot of additional emotions that they're going through, and and it's an interesting time. And I think that it's it's a, it's kind of the perfect time to tell a story like this, as this young girl has to all of a sudden... Uh, start figuring out how to adapt and work within this crazy world that in, into which she's just been thrust. And she just, she takes things in stride. She does, you know, kind of goes along with it. She's scared. She's, she's nervous about things. Um, but she also steps up when she has to, and, um, she does the work and, she she you know stays true to herself and she she grows through it and i think that speaks really highly of the strength that is within uh, 10-year-old children there's they're not just kids you know playing on the playground there really is a lot of strength there and i think that um the way that miyazaki uh, latched onto that um you know it's it's important and i think for kids to see a character like that at the age of 10 that really does you know, kind of, uh, you know, does more than just what kind of just playing and the kids, the things that you think kids do. I think that's really important for them. I, it, it's that level of sort of attention to detail that I think makes this film so much more approachable for all ages. Uh, it, you, there were a couple of other elements of, of that attention to detail that I just wanted to mention that I thought were really touching. And the first one is a story of, of Miyazaki uh, trying to help his animators figure out how Chihiro interacts with uh, you know, with Haku in particular, but in general, how the characters relate to one another. They're such, you know, fabulous sort of creatures uh, from, from you know, animals and spirits to, you know, radish gods, you know. I mean, it's just a crazy imaginary um, collection of these creatures. And it, there is a sequence where the the injured Haku as the serpent is on the, the you know, on, in, on the front of the fireplace and and he's bleeding and injured and uh Miyazaki had a very specific way she he wanted her to reach around and touch him and and help him take the medicine uh and so he sent all the animators to a vet uh, clinic to watch how they relate to how they relate to dogs in particular in a medical setting and that defined uh the animations for that sequence i thought that was amazing because 
when I think of Miyazaki's animation, I don't think of it at the level of uh, sort of uh, visual uh, accuracy that you might do with something like The Good Dinosaur, where they they went out and and specifically tried to recreate, you know, the terrain and the gra- of the grasslands. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, th- it felt like they could have gotten away with a lot more, and we maybe would not have noticed uh, in in Spirited Away. And and so I I found that really touching. Yeah, I mean, when you're speaking of river gods, you know, <laughs> that's yeah, a, or right? river spirits. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it, you could have gotten away with a lot. And the fact that he did kind of have them focus on the detail in that medical sense, I, I think, was uh, was really interesting. Yeah. And the, the only other one is that uh, uh, when the father is driving and they're saying, you know, don't drive like a crazy person, right? And, and he says, don't worry, I've got four-wheel drive. And that could have been just a knockoff line, right? Just write it off. Yeah, he's got a four-wheel drive car. But it turns out they actually gave him the first-generation Audi A4 Quattro that had four, this four-wheel drive system in it. Like, that was legit. They made the car to—, f- to they, they gave him a real car to uh, model to fit the line in the script. I thought that was amusing. That's fantastic. First shot, last shot, Andy. Yeah, we start the film uh, with a close-up message on this bouquet of flowers that uh, says her best friend will miss her. Uh, We cut to Chihiro being sullen in the backseat. She's sad that she's moving from her friends, very much still immature. And the last shot is we've got an overhead shot in the woods, and we're watching Chihiro and her parents drive away from this place. Her parents say, uh, a new home and a new school, it is a bit scary. And Chihiro replies... I think I can handle it. I mean, it says it all to me. You know, yeah. she goes from this immature kid to now she's like, I can do it. And I think that speaks to the growth that she goes through over the course of the film. I think it's, I mean, the visual image, I don't uh, think that there's quite as much of a connection. I think it's more about uh, Chihiro's place in the beginning and end of the film. Totally. And and it, it supports the, the architecture of the fable, right? Taking us into the new world, going over the sort of um, the, the transom and then coming out again, a changed, um, a changed person. And, and that's what she celebrates here. I think it was it was very intentional and uh, it, it, it reads as very intentional. And and um, I, I think it's it's quite beautiful. It is. It really is. Uh, we got that. We've got casting. Co- oh, we've got casting coordinators. Motohiro Hat. Tanaka, Keiko Yagi, and Naomi Yasu uh, did the um, the Japanese and the English version voice casting was uh, done by Jamie Thomason and David Wright. Uh, ADR voice casting Mickey McGowan. I, I watched it in English because I was watching with my with my kids. I have seen both, but uh, this is one where I think that both versions are incredibly strong. The English version, I really have no problems with. I think the voices that they chose work beautifully. I think that they fit the characters uh, to a T. And I think the way that the the script writers uh, chose to uh, or found the right words to fit into the mouths of these particular um, you know characters that had already been drawn, they did a really great job. So nothing felt uh, just oddly paced. Everything just worked. I um, I'm really impressed with with this particular version in English uh, and uh, and Japanese. I think it works in both cases. 
I am too. I did the same thing. I watched it in English with my kids, but I also uh, switched over later and just watched about a half hour in Japanese. And uh, boy, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I found myself really engaged in, and uh, interested in both. I found it interesting the number of times they did do these little, uh, little uh, you know, uh, additions and tweaks to to help us understand. You know, there's a there's a wonderful list uh, online because this film has been written about so so much. There are some great resources online that actually uh, it defines you. Know, here are the things that are culturally resonant in Japan that don't need to be demonstrated, and that we had to actually go in and and uh, you know do some some uh, off-screen dialogue to say, hey, oh, it's a bathhouse, for example. When if you're watching this in Japan, you know it's a bathhouse already, uh, and so those are the kinds of things that 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 came up. I thought it was it, it was uh, really intensive. You can tell that that it was you know that translation was done with a lot of love. Absolutely. It's funny, though, listening to the writers talking about this, they said there were some hiccups when they were um, doing the translation. They got the script and they were trying to match things up. And the one thing that they said uh, kind of caught them off guard was the, um, the when the seal uh, kind of gets uh, uh, coughed up from uh, from Haku when he's the dragon. Um, it, it there's like this little golden uh, stamp and this little like black slug thing and um, and all it said in the in the in the uh, Japanese was a, a seal comes out and this little black slug thing looked like a seal and they're like well it's kind of an odd seal but I guess that's what he's talking about <laughs> okay. so they were focusing on that when they were doing the writing and then they finally realized oh it's this seal so they had to say golden seal so you re- realized oh, okay so we're focusing on that not this little black slug thing. That's really funny. Yeah. Uh, Chihiro uh, played in Japanese by Rumi Hiragi, and in English, Davy Chase. Just again, just I, I, I mean, I, I think the voices are really nice in both cases. I think they both uh, capture the essence of life as a young girl and uh, just uh, just a kid, and I, I really enjoy both of them. Well, Davy Chase is interesting, though. One wasn't. I mean, she was Lilo in Lilo and Stitch. I yep. think the same year, in, right. uh, and so they were up against one another for the Oscar, right? Right for the Academy <laughs> Award uh, for those films. I think that's uh, that's fantastic. Good, uh, good choice, Davy. Uh, the other thing I wanted to add in in a couple of these characters, there is a note of of just how he named the characters, uh, what they are, and and Chihiro is a uh, in Japanese apparently means a thousand fathoms or searches. Sen, when her name is stolen, uh, Sen just means thousand. Uh, but you know, as we go down the list, you can see that you know Yubaba and Zenibaba, the witch. Yubaba is the bathhouse witch. Senibaba is the money witch. Uh, Kamaji, we'll talk about, is the old boiler man. That means old boiler man, uh, you know. And so I, I, I thought that was that was interesting. As you go through, talk about sort of the 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 literal interpretation of their names actually defines their role in the film. You know, I just something that I just caught. Davy Chase was uh, Samantha Darko in Donnie Darko, and I didn't. Realize yes, that. right, right. Yeah. Uh, Haku played in Japanese by Miyu Irino. And uh, here by Jason Marsden. I, I really like the 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 sense of Haku, and just speaking less about the voice work that these guys uh, did for Haku, I just love that. Um, I, I think the character of Haku is such an interesting one. Uh, one, there's kind of this this magic that he seems to have right from the beginning when he meets Jihiro, and how he kind of grabs her and flies kind of along the ground under all these spirits to kind of help protect her and hide her and stuff. 
um, it was really fascinating the way that we are introduced and kind of thrust into this the the magical elements of this world um, through him. But I love how later he kind of implants these directions in her head, and we're kind of seeing it as he's explaining it to her. But it's almost like she's getting it from him, and so she knows exactly how to go to the uh, to the pig pens and stuff. And just then the fact that he's this dragon, he's this spirit of the Kohaku River and this connection that he has with her and how they've known each other because he saved her when she was a young child and fell in the river. And it's just like, this is just, it's really interesting. There's so much more backstory here and the way that these connect. It it was really fascinating. And also, I think it spoke to the environmentalism uh, that Miyazaki loves putting into his films when we learn that Haku, who is this river uh, river spirit of the Kohaku River, loses his place and kind of forgets who he is really because people invade and kind of take over and build apartments and stuff where his river used to be. I mean, it says a lot. It's it's an interesting way to take that character. Yeah, just sort of really kind of heart-wrenching when they discover their connection and, and you know, when he remembers her falling into the river in the little pink shoe, and uh, I think that's just really touching. Um, the uh, Yubaba Zenibaba, I, you know, Mari Natsuki played these roles in Japanese, Suzanne Plachette in English. <laughs> she was great. Uh, and the character design of these characters was fascinating uh and and yubaba's grown baby son uh, <laughs> was also really interesting what did you make of these characters I, yeah i mean you you said it interesting interesting character design you don't know if they're i mean they're not human because you know as it seems chihiro is the only human and everyone thinks she stinks and they hate humans. So I guess she's kind of a spirit in her own way, but what kind is she? I mean, she's kind of this witch, but she's got like this enormous head. I mean, she looks like a like a Mardi Gras uh, character that you'd wear, you know, something that right, you'd see right. in a in a parade. It's it's just insane, but uh, but it's frightening. And I think for that 10-year-old kid, you see kind of this witch like that, and it's really intimidating. And so I, I think that they chose a really smart design for it. The baby is such a strange uh, strange twist to that. And yeah, the, the relationship between Yubaba and Zaniba, and the, the, I found it so interesting that, um, you know, Zaniba kind of puts this curse on the baby that shrinks it uh, down to this little tiny mouse thing. And then later you learned, oh, the curse wore off, but the baby has chosen to stay in this form. And it's, it's you know, just a weird little thing. But again, something that speaks in a really interesting way to the way that the story is is taking things. Well, certainly, again, uh, to this, the, this, the question of parenting, right? I mean, because the baby is, you know, once it starts to speak and you realize, oh, my gosh, this baby is, is terrified of germs and has not been allowed to leave the protection of the bathhouse because the mom is so protective of it, right? And, um, and, and her head, you know, I mean, usually when you look at sort of, I, I don't know, symbolism around the world, symbols of giant heads, typically it, it's a reflection of rulers, right? I mean, you the, the Olmec uh, rulers, the the giant heads on the the uh, the Maui tend to to um, 
have giant heads in their uh, statuary, and it, it's either you know something to be revered or, or you know reverence to a ruler or a sign of brilliance or intelligence, some sort of leadership. So again, it's it's literally on the nose uh, that she would be the ruling witch of the bathhouse, uh, and she has the giant head. But otherwise, physically, she is you know she relies on her magic and and because she's physically less capable. Um, but the boy, uh, the the man boy, is the size of a grown thing. It's actually larger than a grown thing, but it is capable only of, because of the mother's protection, overlong protection, it's capable only of the, uh, you know, what it is capable of as a mouse. And I, I think that's really, uh, I think that was just a really interesting relationship and a great twist at the end when it chose not to, you know, not to change back into its form. It, it actually is a sign of, I think, again, growth and wisdom in the children, uh, which I really liked. So I, I clearly, I've, thought way too far beyond the dock <laughs> on this one but, but I didn't really like it. No, I think it's great. Uh, of course I I you know just to throw it in there. I think that um I like to think of the connection with uh with Yubaba and Miyazaki is that he had recently watched uh, which is the James Bond movie was, was it where Jaws is wearing that big that head and he's like disguising himself in the in the carnival parade. <laughs> Which one was that? Was that Moonraker? Uh, uh, I, I think it's Moonraker that? when he's down in Brazil. Yeah, yeah uh, <laughs> that's awesome. I'm sure you're right. <laughs> I'm sure that's where it came from. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm just going to cut all my stuff out because I think you're. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. Kamaji, <laughs> uh, Kamaji uh, is played in in Japanese by Bunta Sugawara and in English by David Ogden Styers. Uh, ah, and, David. Oh, I just have to say, love David Ogden Styers. He is a Disney regular, and yeah. he does such interesting, different things with his characters when he's doing them. I think that it it just, I mean, he's an amazing voice talent. I mean, when you see what he does as Cogsworth the Clock in Beauty and the mm-hmm. Beast, or uh, doc, the Doctor in uh, Lilo and Stitch, or uh, when he's the uh, the bad guy in Pocahontas, um, or or this guy, or Kamaji. I mean, such interesting different characters that all have such interesting different tones in his voice. Um, he's just a master of the way that he kind of uh, can create characters through voice. And so uh, I was a big fan of him being in this film. I didn't even know it was him until I saw him pop up in the credits. I know. He's, he's such a versatile voice talent. You know, we also have uh, John Ratzenberger shows up in it uh, uh, as... Uh, Aniyaku, or the assistant manager, uh, played in Japanese by uh, Takahiko Ono, and that was just a real treat to to hear his voice in, in something that wasn't Pixar. Well, and I think that this was you know around the time when uh, when uh, uh, John Lasseter was kind of taking over Disney, and you know right. he's just like, well, I'm you know, and he's the one who kind of pitched this whole thing to Miyazaki, and so of course he's got to throw his good luck charm right, into right. the movie, and it was fun to see him doing his little yeah. dance to. Uh, to no face when no face is kind of going crazy that was good who who else do you want to talk about and particularly the characters because the ones that stand out to me are you mentioned it no face uh and then we have the stink spirit uh the the water spirit uh those are the two big ones that i adore I don't think I have any other voice talents uh, to speak of, other than the fact that Michael Chiklis pops up as dad, which, uh, you yep. know, he's just, you know, the, the star of my favorite TV show, The Shield. But other than that, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it, I think it's the, the animation of the characters, No Face, the, the radish spirit, the river spirit that is also the stink spirit. And, of course, the little uh, soot, the soot 
balls. I mean, it it's just such weird stuff going on here. And No Face is such an interesting character because No Face is really kind of the only one that connects with uh, with Chihiro right from the start. I mean, No Face sees her on the bridge uh, consistently every time. Every time she's on the bridge, No Face is there and is seeing her. And and there's this this kind of really touching connection between the two of them. Um, and it's not until uh, No Face is trying to kind of do something more, and all of a sudden this this greed element is introduced, and you see how No Face kind of starts you know giving people what they want, and it turns into this monster. And it's how greed kind of grows. It was really. Uh, kind of terrifying to see this this really sweet character become such a monster, but that's how greed can kind of uh, take you, and it's it's only through that kind of childish lack of greed, in some sense, that Chihiro has, where she just offers this dumpling to No Face, and it helps kind of uh, bring everything back. I mean, it's just really uh, just the animation was beautiful, the character was so creative, and it was a really uh, powerful part of the story for me. Well, that's what I thought was so great about it. It's a reflection spirit, right? It the 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 spirit of No Face actually reflected whatever it was confronted by, and so you know the first time we see it, it is confronted by uh, Chihiro and her generosity and kindness to open the door, and so it responds with generosity and kindness. It meets the frog that's going after the gold and is greedy and wants the gold, and it responds by oh. I'm going to absorb that and literally eat that frog and then be greedy and only want to eat. And and every time somebody is greedy for more gold, it just consumes and consumes until she comes back and is not interested. Uh, and, and it offers, it offers her gold. Here is all the gold you could want. It is now being generous because it's mirroring her generosity. And I thought that was just awesome. Uh, and and even better still that it was the thing that my kids both picked up on, and uh, you know just another sign of of great filmmaking in this style that it it just hit it all the way home uh, for just the right people who needed to see it. Yeah, absolutely. Same thing with the river spirit, the kind of that stink spirit that she ends up helping. Um, that whole character was kind of created with by um, Izaki after he volunteered on this river cleanup. And he just saw all this junk getting pulled out of the river and it just was just horrified at how filthy it was and how people had mistreated this this beautiful natural thing. And and it gave him the idea to kind of create this character out of it. And it's I mean, it's really just disgusting. And I tell you, the animators really hit it out of the park, making you feel like you were smelling this stink spirit because it really I mean, it just everybody reacts just in the in the best ways possible. Uh, to how yeah. bad it smells. And and then you see it kind of cleansed and it becomes this beautiful um, river spirit again. And it's freed and it just, it, it's so peaceful and you just feel this sigh of relief almost as as uh, as it's as all the junk is pulled out and it flies away. It's just really touching. Let's talk about getting it made. Yeah, Toshio Suzuki, uh, again, producing it with their team at uh, Ghibli. Uh, and again, Atsushi Okui as the cinematographer. Our our curiosity is uh, peaked yet again as to what Atsushi was doing. But <laughs> there you are, Atsushi. <laughs> Good on you. Uh, uh, production design, art design, uh, Norubu Yoshida and Yoji Takeshige. Uh, and uh, animation director, Masahashi Ando. Uh, just, uh, just great work. I think this was just such great uh, fantasy taking place in a in a, a period of 
Miyazaki's animation that I could really latch on to, right? It was so cool to see an Audi going into a, a festival area, an amusement park that looked so familiar, someplace I could really connect to. And that's, you know, to their credit. It's uh, they do a great job all through uh, just everything in this really creating the sense of this world and the space and the characters. It has this this otherworldly sense while also feeling a part of this world, and I think that's a real strength. And uh, it just it's it's creative. They they really did a lot of all of them. And something that we also need to mention is they really started doing so much more with the computer animation here. Not to the point where you're getting just like CG characters running around, but they really started integrating it more in some of the landscapes. Uh, the first time I really noticed it was as they were driving and they passed that kind of stone two-faced statue thing. Um, as they're driving, you're passing it and you kind of go around it in a CG way where you can get that sense that this this thing is almost kind of turning to watch them. Um, and it happened a number of times and generally with kind of uh, locations when she's running through the rows of the flowers or the way the water looks or the train stations. Um, Haku, when he transforms into the dragon, I, I kind of felt like there was some CG in there. Mm-hmm. But again, I think that they were using it in a way where it was enhancing the animation that they were already doing. I think so, too. It was lovely. They did some fantastic interpretation of real locations, uh, in particular, Juifen in Taiwan. Uh, It is said that Miyazaki visited a very popular tea house there, and that showed up as the bathhouse. And in fact, Rocket News 24 has a great uh, article where they, they actually take photos uh, from uh, or stills from a video walkthrough and line it up almost directly with a couple of key locations in the film. So you can see what uh, directly inspired uh, the storyboards of, of this uh, spirit village. I thought that was very cool. That is really cool. Yeah, I'm looking at them right now. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's really yeah. great. Uh, Takahashi Sayama edited the thing. Uh, again, tight editing uh, on a long film. Nothing feels long, though. It all feels yeah. like it fits. And so I think that's the strength. I would be very curious to see the three-hour version to see yeah, me too. if it still felt um, like paced strongly or if it actually started feeling long. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, for you, Andy, Joe Hiseishi. There you go. Get that J in there. Your man, your man. It's really good. It is it's really good. It is. It's really good. It is so... Uh, listenable. Like, it's just great all the way through. It's beautiful. I've been listening to it all day. Uh, it is, uh, <laughs> it's just a lot of fun. There is great, uh, there's a great piano lick, and I think it's great that he stuck with piano. Um, there's some wonderful orchestral stuff, too, absolutely. But for the main theme, the piano keeps coming in throughout, and it almost sounds like it's, they put the piano in the corner. Uh, and so the piano's kind of far away, and, and that gives it a really interesting um, interesting sense of of spirit. I I love this score. He, this is uh, definitely one of the the strongest scores I think that he's done for uh, for Miyazaki. But again, it's it's one of Miyazaki's strongest films. So I think that that Hisaishi was just really able to adapt really well to it. And I think that the theme you brought up the piano, and for me, it really fit nicely with the young girl. It just seems to. Uh, kind of connect with her. It felt like almost like Chihiro's instrument in this world of all this other orchestral stuff happening. And so I liked the way that 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 played in the film. How did do an awards season? 
This was a popular one. Uh, there were 57 wins, 27 other nominations. Um, at the Japanese Academy, it won Best Film. And it also won Best Song for the, uh, for the, uh, the end song that plays. Um, what's it called? Always With Me, sung by Yumi Kimura. Um, it, that won Best Song. At the Tokyo Anime Awards, it won a number of them. It won the Grand Prix Award for the Best Film, Art Direction, Character Design, Director, Music, Screenplay, Voice Actor. Uh, Rumi Hiragi won for Best Voice Actor. And Notable Entry for Domestic Feature Film. I'm not exactly sure what that entails, but it won that as well. Over <laughs> here, at, for the Oscars in 2003, it uh, won Best Animated Feature, uh, beating out Lilo and Stitch, you already mentioned, Treasure Planet, Ice Age and Spirit, Stallion of the Cimarron. So far, it is the only hand-drawn animated film to win, and it's also the only Japanese animated film to win. So uh, we'll see if uh, any other hand-drawn or Japanese uh, film ends up winning anytime soon. At the BAFTAs, it won for Best Film Not in the English Language, or it was nominated for Best Film Not in the English Language, lost to In This World. The Annie Awards won for Best Feature, Directing, Music, and Writing. And my favorite of these, um, I'm not reading all of them, but but my favorite of the ones that I am, at the ARP uh, Movies for Grownups Awards, the uh, American Association of Retired People. Um, they apparently have their own awards. And <laughs> you said, I don't think I've ever heard anybody call it ARP. Is that what they say down there? Haven't you? Yeah. Don't you know the commercial? No. Yeah. It's I've you never, don't it's know ARP. I've you don't live. You don't live. That. You don't live in a sea of senior citizens, Pete. <laughs> there are a lot. That's here. so funny yeah. because you my, don't know ARP. Yeah, absolutely. my teenage daughter has gotten on the mailing list. Apparently, they think she is about to retire, so she's invited to all of the talking sessions about your Medicare and like Social Security needs and all this stuff. Of course, she's a teenager, but so we see a ton of ARP stuff come across our our mailbox. I don't think I've heard anybody say it like that ever. A A R P. It's always I've always heard it. Fascinating. I just learned something, and it I'll wasn't find, about a movie. That's right. I'll find one of the spots that I will. I'll it's going in the show notes. You. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you were saying uh, yes, about the but, ARP movies for grownups. Uh, that's right. This movie won the uh, the ARP award for best movie for grownups who refuse to grow up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that has to it. be like. The best award to win. I just love it. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, speaking of the Academy Awards, I, I had I had this distant memory about this, but apparently Miyazaki skipped the Oscars. Yeah, he wasn't there. Uh, Cameron Diaz uh, accepted on his behalf when she was presenting. And and it was his producer, Andy. It was one of your kind, Toshio <laughs> Suzuki, who told him for years not to talk about why. he was He skipped out in protest for the Iraq War. But uh, Miyazaki finally came clean to the New York Times in 2009. Oh, my. Oh, my. Such drama. <laughs> indeed, indeed. This, this movie was the neutron bomb uh, of, of uh, just blowing everybody else out of the water in uh, the box office. At least in Japan it was, yeah. Uh, the budget for Spirited Away was 1.9 billion yen, which was about 17.5 million, and is about 23.8 million in today's dollars. Like Princess Mononoke, this was a huge hit, like you just said, when it opened July 20th, 2001. And as I alluded to last week, this shot to the top as the highest grossing Japanese film in history, beating out Titanic, which had beaten Mononoke. Spirited Away still holds this title too, which is just fantastic. 
At home, the movie raked in 30.4 billion yen, which is about 230.9 million dollars, or about 314 million in today's dollars. You'd think, with the success of this film, like its predecessor, that Disney would jump on the chance to distribute it in the States. Nervous, however, that they'd face another film like Mononoke, even though they contributed 10% to the budget for the first right of refusal for U.S. distribution on this one, Disney had put distribution of Ghibli films, films on hold. Luckily, the film won first place at the Berlin Film Festival, which boded well for it. And then, of course, as we mentioned, even luckier, Miyazaki had developed quite a fan in John Lasseter, who was running Pixar, but uh, was very close to Disney at the time. He swayed them to lock in the distribution rights. Even with all that, Disney still limited the advertising, this time blaming the lack of promotion for the film on the fact that Studio Ghibli retained the merchandising rights to the film and the characters, which left Disney feeling like it wasn't worth spending the extra money. They gave a a limited release on September 20th, 2002, opposite the Banger Sisters, Ballistic X vs. Sever, The Four Feathers, Uh. and Trapped. Went on to make just over $10 domestically, and along with another $34 overseas, ended up grossing about $275 million dollars or $375 million in today's dollars. That gives Spirited Away an adjusted profit per finished minute of $2.8 million. Ugh. This X is versus this... Sever, Andy. I, I know. Right? That just that makes me so mad. <laughs> just that that movie even exists? <laughs> yes, that is exactly it. Oh. oh. Everybody but... involved in that movie should have known better. Banderas, Lucy Liu... <laughs> Ray Park, come on. Maybe not so Ray funny. Park. But this speaks to the merchandising thing. Uh, you know, we're talking yeah. about the the our, our Ghibli parade that we were building over at Disney for them um, and selling all the uh, the spears, the, the uh, Mononoke spears and everything. Um, yeah. Clearly, that's what Disney really wanted to do, but Ghibli wouldn't let them. That's fantastic. <laughs> I think it's, uh, you know, I've got one more thing. It's a little bit of follow-up that I forgot to do at the beginning. Can I, can I do it? Yeah, it's yeah, follow-up from it. last week. We were talking about what it would be like if you ended up at a Miyazaki land, right? A Studio right. Ghibli land. So yeah. I, I found it. I, f- I found it. And it was done. <laughs> like done like Miyazaki a, land? It's, it is Tokyo Ghibli land. And oh. you, it's in the show notes. It is not a real place. An artist uh, by the name of Takumi in Japan has created an unbelievably accurate uh, uh, theme park uh, map, (laughs) animated like a hand-drawn map. And it's so cool. Uh, You can, uh, of course, uh, go into all the places you would imagine. You go to Princess Mononoke, the Shishigami and Friends. Uh, There's like a water ride. There's the Aviation Museum and Cat Monorail. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh you can and and yes, you can go uh eat yourself sick uh as you go through um uh Shishigami's Animal Forest and uh the the Eat Like a Pig food court with the <laughs> Aburaya bathhouse. <laughs> I want that to be real. Right? Right? <laughs> Uh, so I like this I, note. Uh, <laughs> next up, I'm going to design the food menus and merchandise. That is like one <laughs> serious person. I know. I I found myself uh, really, really very excited. The, the closing line, please, Mr. Miyazaki, make this a reality. <laughs> I thought that was great. Brilliant. So that that's all I had to say. Uh, and, oh. and with that, Andy, I think we should rank it. <laughs> Let's do it. 
head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and uh, you'll see our list or you can just swipe over in your show notes and you can tap on flip chart flick chart flip chart flick chart whatever and you will go straight to this film on flick chart where you can add it to your own list let's see how it stacks up first up we're back to the oh brother block spirited away or oh brother where art thou spirited away please spirited away yes indeed spirited away or trading places spirited away spirited away yes sir spirited away or aliens oh man it jumped up quick it's up there yep i I think i'm gonna have to stick with aliens i am too spirited away or no country for old men uh spirited away i don't know sure you do your inner child does I, I I mean, I really could go either way on this one, but I'm leaning toward no country. Yeah, but you could but go I'm flexible. I'm flexible. Yeah, you're flexible. Yeah. I'll give you spirited away, but... Okay, okay. <laughs> spirited away or ace in the hole. Spirited, spirited away. away. Yeah. Spirited away or the French connection. I'm going to say spirited away. Yeah, I think spirited away. Spirited away or apocalypse now. I want to say spirited away. Really? If I'm just thinking about what I would watch first... I would say Apocalypse Now. Seriously? Yeah. Great movie. Tough watch. Yeah, but uh, it's one that I have returned to many a time and uh, always find new things. All right. All right. Well, I'm. I, it would not be a... Uh, I, I would be all right with that. I, I will give you Apocalypse Now. Okay. Spirited Away or The Matrix? The Matrix. Uh, yeah, I'll say The Matrix. I was actually a little torn on that one. Spirited Away is now number 43 on our chart out of 304. Where do you know where it is on your personal chart? You know, I haven't been uh I haven't been checking. I should have. But um I, and I th- I feel like after rewatching this, I feel like I actually need to re-rank it because I feel like it has jumped so much higher than it had been before. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's <laughs> yeah. I would say it's if if it's not there, I'd say it certainly is close to my top 100. Oh, it 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 Dropped it dropped in at number thirty for me. Wow! Out of nine hundred ninety-two on uh, Letterbox.com, uh, for me uh, this landed at uh, a full five star with a like. Yep, full five stars with a like. This is one of those times where I wish they had a love button too. Cause... I know because <laughs> <laughs> I am right there. Such an amazing film. Yeah. Um, and and putting you know this and Mononoke next to each other for me, both five stars that I really like. I would definitely pick this um, as uh, as my top. And I'm so torn if this or My Neighbor Totoro is my favorite uh, 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 Hayao Miyazaki film. And I feel like it could, depending on the day, it could go either way, really. This uh, this is definitely my favorite. Um, uh, you know, I, I just really connected with this film. I, I, I like Totoro a lot, and uh, I, I, absolutely, I'm with you. It's a, um, you know, it's a terrific movie, but I ended up rating this as a four-star, uh, rating Totoro as a four-star uh, on my Letterboxd with a, a four star with a like, and uh, I don't, I don't regret it, especially after watching this again this weekend. Yeah, yeah. Well, there it is. We are wrapping up our Miyazaki series uh, next week. Where do we go from here? Yes, we are finishing it up with his 2004 film Howl's Moving Castle, which will be a fun one to look at. It will. It is. Uh, that will be a, a really fun one to see. I think my kids have seen that more recently than I have, and they have a lot of great memories of it, and that I, I couldn't really connect with so who knows maybe that will be my new favorite Miyazaki film once I watch well it. it'll be an interesting to one to look at because that one's not um, not an original story it's you know he's based that off of a novel uh, mm-hmm. by 
um, uh, Diana Wynne Jones. I'm not really sure much about her, but um, I think she's British, actually. So it'll be an interesting uh, thing to look at and see how he adapts a British novel. Excellent. Looking forward to it. Thank you, Andy. Good talk. And now, oh, i got to go to bed. All right. Well, I've got some work to do. i got to go scrub the big tub. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Oh, and Amazon giveth good. <laughs> no, I think I should. I think I should go first. <laughs> okay. I got a three star by Atkinson, who says, "Too weird." I like weird movies, but this one was a little too weird for me. There <laughs> you go. That was it. I expected that was that. it. It was sort of a warm up. I. Yeah, you know, a three star is just too weird. I, that's all he had. It's just but too it weird. Was, uh, yeah. Well, I we go down from there. Uh, Noamata on May fourteenth, just a couple of days ago, in fact, says this movie is one star and comprehensibly bad. It is not suitable for young children. Parts of it will terrify them and make them fear that their parents, interested only in shoveling food into their own mouths, will not protect their own children. Not suitable for older children and adults. Too smarmy and slow developing. The voice actors seem to have accepted their roles only to pick up a paycheck. They deliver their lines flatly with no real involvement or emotion. Overall, a terrible movie. This movie is not suitable for anyone, Andy. <laughs> just went through the list. For children or older <laughs> children or adults, not suitable because of smarmy. Oh, that's just awesome. Learned a valuable lesson here today. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022... We switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today.